It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, indeedy. Well, here we are. It's a Tuesday. It is the 27th day of February. And as we uh, start a new week and wind down the month, welcome once again to another edition of Lifeline. We're here with in English, Craig. <laughs> There's some days the show needs a translator. All right, let's uh, try that once again with Feely. We are here Monday through Friday from 5 until 7 p.m. addressing issues that impact your life your world. And uh, we aim to do more of that on today's program. A little bit later on, we're going to be talking with Pastor Jeff Miller, Senior Pastor at Redwood Chapel in Castro Valley, about the upcoming Bass Convention, the annual Bay Area Church Workers Convention will be taking place at Redwood once again. That'll be coming up this Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Lifeline will be live on location, broadcasting on the scene on Thursday and Friday, so uh, we hope you'll drop by and uh, say hello, throw a rotten tomato in my direction. Well, you know, what? <laughs> no, don't do that. Whatever tickles your fancy. We'll tell you more about that when Jeff Miller joins us later on in tonight's program. We'll also be joined later on this hour by Tim Winter, Tim of the Parents Television Council. We've been talking with them about the creep of violence into entertainment, movies, music, at all. My goodness, going on three decades now. It's well over a generation. And some might say that we are now reaping what we have sown, that the incidence of increased violence, for example, as we've seen now in Florida yet again, is all demonstrative, of not just access to guns. There's plenty of scapegoats out there. But at the core, the real issue is desensitization of an entire generation who not only sees violence as common but as an easy way to settle disputes. Certainly television and the movies teach us that. We'll talk about that and what the answers can be to stem the tide of this when Tim Winter joins us later on. But as we lead off the program tonight, uh, you probably know just on the heels of the Winter Olympics in South Korea that North Korea continues to be in the news, this time the issue of denuclearization which, um, according to White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders in a briefing yesterday, said that that is the ultimate goal and must be so of any dialogue with North Korea. The message that the United States wanted to deliver was the one of maximum pressure, and we continue to do that. They have expressed a desire to hold talks. But let us be completely clear. Denuclearization must be the result of any dialogue with North Korea. Companies and countries around the world should know that the Trump administration is 100% committed to the permanent denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Well, the commitment might be 100%. Is it realistic? With some insights, we're joined now by Claudia Rossett. Claudia is Foreign Policy Fellow at the Independent Women's Forum, author of the best-selling Encounter Books, what to do about the U.N. And, Claudia, great to have you on the program. What about this fundamental question? I mean, I, I, I think that there is commonality amongst the free world that we would like to see a denuclearized North Korea, but I suspect that the reality is that it joins the list of the United States, Russia, uh, Great Britain, France, China, India, Pakistan, possibly Israel and Iran as a nuclear power, and I just can't see the Kim administration saying, okay, we'll get rid of them all. What do you think? 
Unfortunately, you're 100% correct. <laughs> They're not going to do that. And the hope of talk, you know, talks sound really attractive because they're peaceful and it would be wonderful to have some peaceful way out of this. Uh, perhaps there is one, but it does not involve talking, talking or negotiating with North Korea because they are never going to voluntarily in talks or anything like that give up the nuclear weapons that they already have and are working on more. Um, Look, the bottom line is there's only one way that North Korea is going to end its nuclear program, and that is if we see an end to the regime in North Korea, if that entire government goes. And once you have a regime change, now you have a chance of a North Korea, preferably unified under South Korea, no longer pursuing these nuclear weapons. Anything short of that We've been down this road so many times before, and it has never worked. I have to wonder, um, your inference that this is really something that uh, is only going to come from regime change makes me wonder, as we look at the broader picture here, um, I am one of the few journalists who's been into North Korea, so I'm fairly familiar with the surroundings there. And I've been long of the opinion that the nuclear missile program of North Korea isn't really North Korea's nuclear missile program. It's really China's. I mean, I I find it difficult to imagine that any of this would not be possible without the complete cooperation of their neighbor and, quite frankly, probably only real ally, China. What do you think of that? Well, I would love to really argue with you, but you're right again. Um, (laughs) The main thing I would add is that I think Russia is helping, too. But there's a sort of conventional wisdom that's endlessly repeated in Washington, which is that, oh, China doesn't really like this. You know, they they didn't want North Korea to develop nuclear weapons. They're terrified of North Korean collapse. Actually, if you look at what China has done for decades, in fact, going back to the Korean War in 1950, uh, versus what the Chinese government says, China backs North Korea. China is fine with this. And China is not threatened by North Korea because North Korea's nuclear missiles are not going to be aimed at China. They're not for Beijing. They're for us. Most of all, they're for intimidating us, blackmailing us to get us out of East Asia, which China is fine with that goal. So is Russia, for that matter. Um, And there are specific things that the North Korean Kim family regime, Kim Jong-un's regime, wants. Yes, they want to survive. But they also still, if you listen to their own rhetoric, aspire to complete what they began with the Korean War in 1950 and subjugate South Korea, a free democratic nation. And uh, that's part of what the missiles are for, is for blackmailing us. All of this is something where that's really not contrary to China's interests at all. And uh, if you look again, China has helped them with equipment for this program as a hub for illicit procurement for their weapons programs. Uh, It helps them diplomatically. And the same thing goes at the UN. It's endlessly China that is a big problem for getting resolutions passed. And the resolutions that the UN does pass, China and Russia, because Russia does the same routine. And remember, the Stalin Soviet Union that founded North Korea at the end of World War II and installed the current Kim family three generations back. But they agree to things like sanctions. Russia and China sit there and vote in favor of them and then just violate them because they're not held to account by the UN. They're supposed to police themselves. 
So North Korea is actually part, this is part of what's really dangerous. It is part of a rising axis of increasingly um, militarized, not-so-friendly powers, China, Russia, North Korea, and remember Iran in the Middle East. And we've just been reading about uh, confirmation, finally, from official sources of something that has been out there for years. North Korea has been helping Syria's chemical weapons program, following Syria's secret nuclear reactor that the Israelis destroyed in 2007. But all of this, this is not contrary to what China wants or Russia wants or Iran wants. This actually fits right in. And to have us bullied, blackmailed, pushed out of East Asia, because the, the sort of worrying scenario here is that North Korea completes these missiles that can reach our shores, where we're told they're just a few months away. Actually, it would not surprise me if they're already there, okay? And then threatens us. You know, yes, we can shoot down these missiles perhaps, but it's not 100% that we're sure that we can. And says, if you want to be, if we're going to take out an American city. We're going to land one on your shores unless you do the following. Now it's a game of chicken, okay? We can say, yeah, we dare you try it because we'll annihilate you. But we have backed down over decades when North Korea plays these games of chicken and we blink. And they have every reason to think we would again. So that's part of the complicated game. And the idea, part of the problem with the sanctions that we're now seeing, I'm all in favor of hurting the North Korean regime. It's monstrous and repressive and really needs to go. But that's the solution, not trying to dignify it by dealing with it. Uh, the problem is the aim of the sanctions is to try and get them to the table and then bargain with them. We've done that over and over. The 1994 agreed framework deal under President Clinton, the 2005 six-party talks, the 2007 nuclear freeze deal under President George Bush, President Obama's attempted deal in 2012. We know that North Korea takes whatever it can get. These are pit stops for North Korea, pockets the gains, walks away and carries on. Well, and what's so, always struck me about this talk or rhetoric, quite frankly, in my opinion, um, concerning um, more sanctions and now, you know, the toughest sanctions ever. Well, the last time yeah. there was talk about the toughest sanctions ever, uh, we saw in that round China simply turn around, and I think at that time it was cramping, clamping down on fuel exports. And what did China do? China just said, okay, no problem. We're just going to qu- quietly increase fuel exports to North Korea by 40%. So it, it, it's clear that there's no cooperation there. And I, and I have to wonder, as you observe this, uh, Claudia, is there a lot, at least my impression seems to be, there appears to be an awful lot of diplomatic ignorance going on here. We spend so much time listening to what they say, and I wonder if the thing we really ought to be doing is watching what they do. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a whole ballgame here. I think with diplomats, I'm not sure whether it's ignorance or a kind of wishful thinking. You know, in the bubble of Washington, uh, there is this, it's it, it sort of, not polite to even hint that anything might end up with, for instance, another hot war over in with North Korea. The problem being, we may be heading for that whether we want to or not. You know, it's it, the risks are just becoming so extreme as their programs go forward and we don't do anything to stop them. And I think a lot of diplomats and politicians, they sort of default to things that are okay for today. That's the famous kicking the can down the road where we have run out of road. You know, we have. And, and the problem is uh, people sort of don't want to believe that anything truly terrible could happen. 
you know, you live in a time of peace. You get up in the morning and you eat your toast and life is fine, really. And it's implausible. It just seems inconceivable. How could we believe? Nobody has dropped, uh, nobody has used a nuclear weapon in war since we bombed Japan to end World War II. And it seems like it could never happen again. Well, actually, history and human nature say, oh, yes, it can. And right now, the circumstances are taking shape in East Asia that make it, more, unfortunately, more and more likely that it will. This is where I say the, that nuclear program is central to the survival, the ethos, the everything that sustains the Kim Jong-un regime at this point. The solution isn't to try and bargain them out of it, which sort of dignifies them at our level, says you're our bargaining partner. It is to look for ways, preferably low cost. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I don't, I don't want a war either, unless there's no way to avoid it. But look for ways, how do we bring this down? It's the way what finally solved the confrontation with the Soviet Union. It wasn't a grand bargain. It was the collapse of the Soviet Union. Well, and, and, and ironically, you know, uh, as you point out, historically, we've got uh, ample and quite frankly, very terrifying evidence to demonstrate that the last time the West thought that it could negotiate and come to the table and bargain with a madman, things did not work out very well and uh, permanently sullied the reputation of Neville Chamberlain. Yeah, we found peace in our time, all right, and I'm a I'm fearful, as Claudia suggests, that we're sort of the same illusion today. Because nothing's happened so far, that means nothing will happen. Yeah. Claudia Rossett, thank you so much, Claudia, for the insights, delight, and an education to visit with you. Claudia, Foreign Policy Fellow with the Independent Women's Forum. Information available on the web at iwf.org. She also the author of the Encounter books, What to Do About the U.N. Some great insights. Claudia Rossett. All right, we're here at uh, 520. Let's get caught up on traffic. We're a bit late, so let's see what's going on. Michael Bennett stands by with the latest on your Tuesday ride home from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Do you want to play what? Okay. Say hello to my little friend. Yeah, that, in case you're curious, was Scarface 35 years ago. And while hardly the introduction of violence to movies by a long shot, um, that movie at least marking a full generation that has been not only well-versed, but some might argue indoctrinated into every sort and kind of violence in entertainment I thought it was interesting here in the last couple of months in the wake of the accusations against Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby, Kevin Spacey, now Ryan Seacrest, I read today. Um, Hollywood certainly then got solidly behind the Me Too movement and showing its sense of vim and vinegar over dealing with the issue of uh, mistreatment of women. Seems to be kind of odd that it's very late in the game. They've, they've found their moral compass. The irony is, of course, that much of the behavior and the meltdown that we see in what used to be polite society today 
I'm of the opinion, can largely be linked right back to this propaganda campaign of desensitization that has gone on for, well, as I indicated, well over 35 years now, probably headed toward uh, a couple of solid generations worth. Let's get some insights now with Tim Winter. Tim is president of the Parents Television Council. Tim, thanks for taking time to be with us today. Uh, There are broader issues, of course, that surround this topic of discussion. But, But at the core, I just can't help but think Hollywood pounding away at this notion of violence as entertainment has got to have some sort of effect on society. And when we look at things like the latest round of tragic shootings in public schools, I have to wonder if, in a sense, we aren't essentially sowing what we have long reaped. Well, you certainly (laughs) teed up an introduction that was about perfect. Thank you so much, and good afternoon to you and to uh, all our friends there in the San Francisco Bay Area from Hollywood here. Um, you know, if you if you listen to what Hollywood says, they hate gun violence. If you look at what Hollywood does, they love gun violence because every single night they're providing basically a dress rehearsal for some of these heinous acts that we're seeing, and so many now being perpetrated by children and, and, and youngsters. Uh, you have it's in our movies, it's in our video games, it's in even our prime time broadcast television series. Where, where on a nightly basis, there just seems to be an addiction to bloody gun violence that, that normalizes it, that desensitizes the public to it, and that uh, basically gives children a blueprint for, for how to go about these, uh, these, these horrible uh, acts. There have been down through the years calls for boycotts, for um, censorship. Uh, Certainly the motion picture code, I think, was initially implemented in order to help uh, stem the tide of some of this, although in retrospect, uh, I'm shocked to see uh, what what manages to get out even under the G rating these days. And I'm no prude, but at the end of the day, I have to wonder, Tim, if, if, again, essentially what we've done here is that there's been slow poisoning of the water to the point where it's almost impossible to retreat because it's so pervasive. And every time you suggest that we need to seriously take a look at this, people scream and yell, oh, no, that's censorship. We're a free nation. We don't engage in that. And yet I have to wonder, um, you can't go into a crowded movie theater, as the saying goes, and yell fire and say that that's protected under the First Amendment. Why can't we have a, a, a greater sense of, if not self-censorship, since that clearly has not worked so well, uh, censorship at some level so that we can do a better job of protecting our children from all this violence that shows up in everything from cartoon television to anime to live-action films to video games. Well, we've, uh, we have uh, fought the good fight uh, in courts with legislation that would uh, not necessarily prohibit or ban or even limit the, the production of some of the more violent, explicit stuff, uh, but what we've done is we, we actually passed several years ago a bill in Sacramento that uh, would prohibit uh, minor children who were unattended with, uh, without parents with them from purchasing these ultra-violent uh, you know, vi- video games. Uh, and sadly, we wa- went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court and lost on a, on a very weird five-to-four split vote. So, so you know, the, at least the courts have been reluctant to say violence is going to be something we're going to have any regulatory approval over. Okay, um, then when you look at who is funding, who's writing the checks for some of these really explicit violent shows, 
the answer frequently is it's the, the major corporations, the advertisers. And that's not censorship. When we, when we hold account uh, advertisers public, publicly accountable for what they underwrite with their media dollars, it's not censorship. It's, it's actually using our, our First Amendment right of free speech to, to voice uh, our opinion. Uh, it's not government saying you must not be able to, to do this. What we're saying is if, if a corporation is willing to sponsor a television show that includes, you know, blood-soaked violence with guns that, you know, again, provides blueprints for children to then do it, um, uh, you know, it, we're, we're holding them to account for underwriting it and putting their good brand image of their products next to and, and endorsing that very same violent content. The challenge, of course, is that it's about the numbers game, and any ad agency will tell you, boy, they're really going after that uh, that core 18-plus to 18-34. Uh, they want to bring them in. And so then it becomes a difficult moral decision for a corporation to decide we won't sponsor this, in spite of the fact that we're going to get access to lots of eyes and lots of ears. This is our core audience, or this is our core demographic that would consume our product. Uh, I, I just have to wonder, you know, corporations are not people, even though sometimes folks in Washington, D.C. like to think they are. They, they don't have a moral compass, per se, and so convincing them, uh, you, you have to have a significant number of people to really do a, uh, how should we say, a, a painful boycott that really hurts their bottom line before they would really pay attention, wouldn't they? Well, uh, the Parents Television Council proudly has a pretty good track record at holding the, the sponsors accountable. We've seen television shows uh, canceled after after advertisers realize what they're sponsoring. Um, advertisers are, you know, are corporations. Corporations are not people. But the corporations are led by uh, executives who are people. And by trying to associate them with uh, the content they underwrite with their media dollars, uh, you, you can actually have a positive effect. We've seen it before. It's not a perfect solution, but but um, uh, we've had great success in the past. And the and the and the what you 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 called it out exactly right. They need to advertise. They need to get their products in front of the audience they're trying to reach. But what we've found is that instead of a show that maybe has you know horrific gun slaughter that that uh, is very bloody and very explicit they could reach that very same audience with different type of programming. Oftentimes that young male demographic, they are watching the violent stuff, but they're also watching sports. They're watching live sports. So perhaps, you know, we can encourage the advertiser to shift the dollars from something bad to something positive. And that's, uh, and that's why voices are so important. They, they are now more and more sensitive to social media postings. We can go online and say, hey, look what you're sponsoring. Um, we did so today. Um, you know, Delta Airlines has announced they're pulling their uh, affiliation with the NRA membership, uh, yet they are still sponsoring some of the most graphic and explicit TV violence. So if they're, if they're saying that they don't want to be associated with gun violence, then they have to be true all the way through. And so we're going to use their words to, uh, to, to as, as a, you know, hopefully a, a lever to get them to full, fulfill it all the way through. So essentially to hold them accountable, and, and, and I think there's great merit in that. Let's pause for a moment here, Tim. I want to get a quick update on traffic for our listeners. When we come back, I want to explore this a little bit deeper. And, and just before we finally leave the topic of, of, of censorship, I, I want to ask a question in relationship to how it used to work and get your thoughts on why that won't work anymore. With us today is Tim Winter. Tim is the president of the Parents Television Council. 
Council. I have said it on this program repeatedly down through the years that what we're seeing with the uptick in violence in our nation is trained behavior. You know, even in the issue when it comes to gun control, you can go back in a period of time in history when there was a higher percentage of Americans that walked around with guns strapped on their hips or, you know, a a rifle hanging above the fireplace, and yet you had nowhere near the level of mass violence. And that has nothing to do with machine guns, by the way. And yet, Today, while the percentage or per capita of gun ownership is significantly less, we have an increase in violence. So what's changed? I would argue what's changed is that we've had this steady diet pounded into us that violence is entertainment, violence is no big deal. We have it in our video games, in anime, in the cartoons, in the music that we listen to. And I find it a bit disingenuous when we have this Tim referred to Hollywood coming out, just shocked to find out that this has been going on when, in fact, it has been their steady diet and their income for all these years. They've taught it to us, and now they're offended that it's going on. Boy, talk about double-mindedness. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation. When we come back, questions about the old Hayes Code as this edition of Lifeline continues. 532. Let's get a look at traffic right now. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to our conversation. Tim Winter, our guest, president of the Parents Television Council. We're talking about widespread violence that we see everywhere. And, of course, sadly now it's being played out not as a means of entertainment, but as a means of problem-solving. At least you think that this is simply acts of violence, senseless violence, as if there's a type of violence that makes sense, but senseless violence committed by crazy people. I I think there's an awful lot of frog in the kettle going on here. And and before we leave this topic of censorship, I'm just curious, Tim, from your viewpoint, and I know I'm going to sound about as antiquated as a horse and buggy here, But I have to wonder, there was a time in the 1930s when there was a significant uptick in violence. A lot of it was tied into uh, the the evolution of sound. And, of course, uh, we saw late 20s, early 30s prohibition. And so with the violence going on in places like New York and Chicago, it was only logical that Hollywood would say, hey, here's some great um, subject matter. And and eventually um, Hollywood was called to reason. And the former postmaster general, Will Hayes, was um, tasked with the responsibility of helping Hollywood police itself. Is it all that together far-fetched to think that there's no possibility that Hollywood would accept a a, a Hayes code of sorts again? I mean, given the fact that they find um, so much objection to gun violence or so much objection to the objectification of women? Uh, sadly, they will um, they will continue to rate uh, their content as appropriate for children, even though it's not. The Hayes Code was succeeded by the Motion Picture Association of America's uh, uh, movie guideline. You know, we I think most parents are familiar with PG-13 and R and G and, and PG. Uh, what uh, the uh, the Annenberg School recently uh, found that there was more gun violence in PG-13 movies than in R-rated movies, and and you'd think that that would be the other way around. Um, the Parents Television Council just we just uh, published a research report uh, citing the that 
the increase in gun violence on primetime broadcast television is uniformly 100% rated as appropriate for children to watch wow. by the by the industry's own uh, standards, which they, they administer. It's their self-policing and how they rate the shows. People say you can use the V-chip to block it, but the V-chip in a television is only triggered by the content rating of the show. And so if every show is rated as appropriate for children, then how can a parent possibly uh, be, uh, be alerted to a, a problem? So uh, unless there is a financial consequence to Hollywood for being dishonest in their rating system, uh, sadly, they will continue to do so because uh, it's more profitable for them to rate it as appropriate for uh, for uh, children. Jack Valenti, if he were still with us, would probably say, hey, boys, a stroke of genius. <laughs> and well, we yet... had meetings with Jack Valenti over the years, and uh, and he he was uh, he realized what he was on to, stroke of genius, just as you said. Sadly, though, the, the end product is what we're seeing uh, played out in society. So this brings us full circle to, I think, two real critical questions here, Tim. Uh, one is to... Um, communicate a loud and powerful message to Hollywood that we're fed up with this. And secondarily, the the question that every parent struggles with, and that is, okay, how, how with the proliferation of the Internet? And, you know, it used to be you'd be worried about, well, if I control the TV at home, my kid could go over to a neighbor's house and be exposed to stuff when their parents are at home. Uh, now, of course, we know that it, it it's available even on their, their smartphones. How do we go about sending the message to Hollywood, enough is enough? And in the meanwhile, how do we go about doing the best job to protect our kids from getting inundated with this junk? Well, great questions. And, Craig, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's, it's never been more difficult to be a parent than, than right here, right now, with so many uh, toxic media choices literally within a child's hand with, with their telephone. Um, it, it requires parents to be much more vigilant. Um, you know, we, we put them in car, car seats, we lock their doors, we try to feed them healthy food. We also have to understand that, uh, that their consumption of age-inappropriate material is harmful to them, just as, as bad food is harmful to them, so too is this harmful. But the second thing is, and you said it just a second ago, thus far and no farther is what we have to say as, as, uh, as Americans. We have to speak up and speak out. That means uh, voting with our wallets, understanding who the sponsors, the corporate sponsors of these programs are, and making good media choices uh, uh, to, when it comes to what our children are going to consume in terms of media. So it, it really is a mixed bag. Uh, it's, a tough, it's a tough go right now for parents, but that's why the Parents Television Council is here. You know, membership is free. You can come. You can learn on our website and be informed, be, be a more informed parent, but, but don't back and do nothing because it really is uh, an increasingly toxic uh, environmental uh, you know hazard for for parents and it's only getting get worse as we have these new uh, uh, these new streaming platforms that are that are available to us and, and insofar as and I this is going to seem to be a fairly ignorant question but in insofar as being able to get some coordinated effort going on at sending the message to Hollywood I mean it seems like every time you turn around, uh, something new crops up, and there have been even cases that I've been asked to preview films on behalf of this program and uh, sent over a nice uh, media kit, and you go to the uh, the media displaying of the film and walk out thinking, wow, that's nothing of what I thought I was going to see because it was yeah. riddled with, again, nothing but, but foul language or violence. How do you go about getting a coordinated effort underway when it crops up in so many different places? 
Well, again, that's the, why the PTC, the Parents Television Council, is here. We are we try to uh, channel voices together. You know, it's a, if we speak out in unison at the right place in the right time, we can figure out where the levers are, where we can pull levers and actually have uh, an impact. Where, uh, where in Washington D.C., where in Hollywood, where on Madison Avenue. You know, again, it's you think about television advertising. Eighty billion dollars every year is spent on TV advertising in America, and the purpose of each and every one of those eighty billion dollars is to change the behavior of the viewer, to get the viewer to do something with that TV commercial that they weren't otherwise going to do. The ability to change the viewer's behavior doesn't stop when the commercial is over and the TV show comes back on. It continues, and that's why we have to hold those who write the checks for this stuff. They're the ones who ultimately have to be held most accountable. And I think a sense of, again, that that, that coordination is very important. And uh, I'm going to say this. We have been talking with folks from uh, Parents Television Council for the nearly 30 years that this program has been on the air. And I think it's important that we, as whether you're a concerned parent or grandparent or just John Q. citizen that is fed up with the steady diet of what is fed to us um, as a violence in everything from um, online gaming videos, to rap music, to television, to film, to internet, to what you get off of YouTube, to what you get off of Netflix or Hulu, whatever. Uh, We need to not only be vocal, be engaged, but also be supportive of organizations like Parents Television Council, and if you want to be on top of what they're doing and also keep them posted of things that you find out about, um, you can be in touch with them online at parentstv.org. That's parentstv.org. Great organization, and they are very much in need of our support because at the end of the day, you know, this country becomes what we allow it to become. And uh, if we're fed up with what we see taking place, then uh, You know, the only way for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing, right? Our thanks again to Tim Winter, president of the television, Parents Television Council, online at parentstv.org. All right, 546, we'll swing back over to the KFAX Traffic Center, get you updated on traffic, and standing by with the latest on this Tuesday is Mr. Michael Bennett. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, when you think of a lot of the challenges that our nation has been facing for the last couple of three years, uh, you know, unemployment situations, uh, loss of homes because of a foreclosure, uh, you know, it's easy to get discouraged, certainly to kind of live in that that place that's sort of permanent disappointment. And yet out of all of that, particularly for Christians, how do we we be uh, sort of adequately rise up and, and, and above all of that so we can go on with life and, and enjoy victory in our relationship with Christ? Well, that topic uh, centers around the title of a new book written by my next guest. Uh, you'll recognize her as having been the uh, Emmy Award-winning co-host of Aspiring Women on uh, KTLN here in the San Francisco Bay Area. She's written a number of best-selling books, in fact, over 30 to her credit, including her latest, How to Get Past Disappointment, Finding Hope. And Michelle McKinney-Hammond, Michelle, great to have you on the show. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Boy, this is, uh, this is a timely topic. So many people are just dealing with that kind of overall biting sense of disappointment of what's going on. They've, you know, Life can be tough enough, and then when you add to it the economy and so on and so forth, yes. I think a lot of people kind of get stuck in that place and they don't know how to get out. Yes, yes. Because they begin to see cycles. 
in their lives, and it, it leads to the, to the deception that this is all life has to offer, and well, I should just settle in and, and not expect more than where I am, and then we begin to to make choices that sink us even lower in, into that place, you know. And then I wonder, as that process is kind of taking place, um, if there needs to be a change in our thinking. You know, I think there are some Christians who who move into that position of defeat and disappointment, and they kind of, you know, kind of conclude that it's here, it's here to stay, so I have to learn to live with disappointment. Right. As opposed to learning from disappointment and then moving on back into victory. Right. Because every disappointment, you know, a friend of mine um, all describes disappointment as a disappointment uh, in the sense that we make appointments in life for ourselves, decisions of, of what should be or how things should go. And when the other people don't meet us there, the other parties involved don't meet us there, we feel dissed, we feel um, cast off, um, and it just really invites a spirit of rejection that lowers our self-esteem and, and literally paralyzes us. Um, so that we do get stuck, as you said. And a lot of it, I think, then comes down to misguided expectations. I mean, let's think for a moment about people. Mm-hmm. How often do we live in that position of disappointment because our son, our daughter, our husband, our wife, uh, our parents uh, did something or behaved in a fashion that disappointed us, and now all of a sudden we're we're kind of stuck in that defeat position? Yeah, yeah. It's true, and, and, and you know, life is, is a greater thing than that, and so we really cannot base uh, how, the conclusions that we make on life based on what people did or didn't do. It has to be come from a, a deeper place. That's why I use the, uh, the woman at the well um, as an example um, in this book, How to Get Past Disappointment, because she had been through a cycle of disappointments that led her to the conclusion that that was all life had to offer for her. And, and the danger in that is that when we get so jaded by our disappointments, we can't recognize the blessing when it does present itself. And, you know, what's amazing about that story is that um, e- even as, as Jesus meets with her, mm-hmm. he knows exactly what's going on. Oh, yeah. You know, we, we, I think, sometimes think that we can kind of hide that. We try to mask those feelings mm-hmm. instead of coming to the terms with them or instead of dealing with the root cause of what is behind the disappointment and sometimes the role that we play because maybe we've gotten our eyes focused more on the person or the situation instead of keeping our eyes focused on Christ. And, and maybe as we're, you know, kind of trying to keep up fronts, you know, keep up appearances, and yet Jesus fully knows what's going on, doesn't he? He does, you know, and, and, and what I think is important for, for listeners to know is that despite your bad choices, um, your seeming failures, or even uh, the contributions you think you've made to your life being the way you are, Jesus makes an appointment with all of us. I mean, Jesus went to that well to meet that woman on purpose. It was a purposeful decision to be there that day when she got there. Um, and I think that he... Um, is just as purposeful with meeting us in those places of disappointment. He has an appointment to meet us there, um, to show us another way, to show us another wellspring, another area of fulfillment um, that will bring about uh, what we've been thirsting for. I don't think that she even realized how deep her disappointment was until he started pushing her buttons and uh, getting her to see that there was an option. You know, so many people that I talk to who are disappointed feel they don't have any other option. 
Um, I was just talking to um, a friend of mine the other day on the phone in uh, another failed relationship, and she said, well, here I am alone again, um, and I don't think I'll ever have anyone. I said, well, maybe you don't have anyone today, but don't feel that because that person rejected you that you have no options. You have options. And as a matter of fact, uh, we exercise those options every day. I mean, I always tell single people, you're alone because you want to be alone, because there are people that you de- decided that you did not want to have in your life. Mm. You know, so don't don't say that, you know, oh, you, you, you are the helpless person in this. No, you've had options that you chose not to exercise. So you are single by choice. How to Get Past Disappointment, Finding Hope, the title of her new book, newly published again by Harvest House and available through Amazon.com, as well as through Bay Area Christian bookstores and bookstores overall. Uh, Michelle, as we talk about sort of realigning our, our expectations, talk to me about the process of moving from from fear to hope in in the backdrop of dealing with circumstances, sometimes of our own creation, sometimes beyond our control. But nevertheless, how do we go about making that transition from fear to hope? Well, it really is taking, taking our eyes off of what we consider the source to seeing the root of the issue because the disappointments in our lives are really the fruit that emanate from a root. And I, I think that a lot of times we live on the surface and, and we only deal with what we see versus what we don't see. Uh, when we look at the conversation that took place between Jesus and the woman at the well, we find out that the issue was deeper than her desire to be loved by these men. It really was a great need for God. Almost a crying uh, out in a sense. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, you know, she was trying to fill a void uh, with the, to the best of her ability with something that was natural not knowing that what she needed was supernatural. Um, and, and, and it's very interesting because there's a very subtle uh, conversation that happens uh, when she tells Jesus, you know, this water that you're talking about, I want it because I'm tired of being thirsty and I don't want to have to come back here again. And I think that a lot of us are that way. We're tired of longing, and we don't want to keep revisiting the same issue over and over again in our lives. And he says, I'll give it to you, um, you know, go and get your husband and, now we get down to, to the nitty-gritty of confessing where we really are. She says, I don't have a husband. Well, I mean, she probably had been saying she had a husband. She was living with a man, according to the scripture. And he says, you've told the truth. And he congratulates her on it. He says, you've done well to tell the truth. So um, we know that the word says that the truth is what makes us free. It gives us the tools we need to, to get beyond where we are. And uh, so he congratulates her, he's very gracious with her, and says it's true that you don't have a husband. You've had five, and the one you're with now is not yours. So what he was bringing up was, here's this cycle that you've had in your life, and, and you, you've had five, five, six men, and you're still thirsty. You know, what have we continued to do and still felt the same longing, the same disappointment? even though we thought we were applying solutions to our, to our longings and desires. And I think that the light went on in her head, because even though she perceived him to be a prophet, the question that she asked him was not about the men. It wasn't about, will those relationships work out? It was, how could she get to God? Because obviously the men had never been enough. And I say that what God is saying to all of us in the middle of our disappointments is, 
Look to me so that I can show you the source of fulfillment. Look to me so I can give you the wisdom to find a better way to exercise different options in your life that bring about the victory that you desire. And, you know, you put it so well, because so often this ends, ends up being a product of having put our trust, our faith, our hope and desire on something other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, most definitely. And, and he must be. You know, he says, I am the rewarder of those who diligently seek me. And then he says something even more spectacular. He says, at my right hand are pleasures evermore. I am your exceeding and great reward. And the reward is the pleasure of being in my company. Because when I come into your life, I bring everything that you've been looking for. And all of those solutions are found in me. He, he's the one who gives us the wisdom uh, to, to gain the things that he knows we want. He's not opposed to us having what we want. But he wants to add what we need to the ball game too. Yeah. And sometimes we don't recognize that. I don't think that uh, that woman didn't even know why. We don't know, you know, the the inside scoop on all those relationships. He said she had had five husbands. So if he said five husbands and then differentiated that the one she was with was not hers, that means she had five legitimate husbands. What happened to them? Did they divorce her? Did they abuse her? Did they leave her? Did they die? We do not know. But out of it came a vow, obviously, that she was not going to put herself in the position to be disappointed again, and she made a bad choice. She made a choice that she thought would put her in the position of power by simply living with someone so that she could not be abandoned again. And we do that. We, we prop ourselves up and we begin to make compromises that we think are guarding our hearts, but it really puts us in the position for greater pain. We appreciate so much, uh, Michelle, the insights. I know a lot of this comes from your own life experience, and, and I'll let readers get a copy of the book to, uh, to get more details on that. Meanwhile, again, um, How to Get Past Disappointment, Finding Hope, published by Harvest House and available through Amazon.com and certainly at uh, Bay Area bookstores. Also information on the web at MichelleHammond.com. That's M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E, MichelleHammond.com. Michelle, thanks again so much for your time.